Scott Colborn with Exploring Unexplained Phenomena. Good morning, folks, and how are you doing, huh? Jim Shorty's here. Hey, Jim. Good morning. What's in your cup? Uh, nothing right now. And I don't... we got to fix that. I don't see a coffee cup for the host either. What's up with that? I don't know. I thought I'd put it... Uh... There it is. I, I put I, it right over there. I can't feel it from clear over here. How's your week been? Pretty good. What's uh, pretty good mean, Jim? Decent, decent weather. Uh, <laughs> okay. Um, busy at work, which is always a good thing because it means I have a job. Yeah. And uh, how's your son? How's Alex doing? He's doing pretty good. Uh, working and sleeping and going out with his buddies, so I don't see a whole lot of him these days, but uh, he's looking pretty good. They grew up quick. A handsome young man. He's a neat young guy, I agree. Yep. Hey, with us is Charlene with the Capital Humane Society. She's going to start the program off. Then we go to Brent Rains with his segment, What is Reality? And our main guest today is Nick Redfern. 30 books or better, including... This brand new one, Cover-Ups and Secrets, The Complete Guide to Government Conspiracies, Manipulations, and Deceptions. I'm Scott Colborn. You are listening to Exploring Unexplained Phenomena. And this is now Pet Talk with Charlene from the Capital Humane Society. Good morning. Good morning. And so how are things at the Capital Humane Society? We're doing really well here. We're getting excited because today we are having a kitten spectacular. So today <laughs> oh, only. Spectacular. All kittens, yeah, under one year of age are going to have their adoption fees reduced by 50%. That's just awesome. Very cool. Yeah, we have, yeah, we have so many cuties. And I hear there's some big news. Your commander-in-chief is retiring. Yes, yes, he's done an amazing job. He has. Um, and we, and as he said, we hope uh, the community will continue to support our important work as we move forward. Well, we extend our best wishes and good luck to Bob in his retirement, and uh, as, hope he has many more years to come. Oh, absolutely. Has anybody told Bob that he can't retire? Uh-uh. <laughs> I'm, I'm, it's possible. I'm, I'm sure someone has tried. <laughs> This is uh, Charlene with the Capital Humane Society and Pet Talk is our segment. We're going to talk about first cats and kittens for adoption and then dogs. Who's up first, Charlene? We are just going to remind folks again that we have so many adorable kittens. So we've got kittens, 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 and those are pictures of a a variety of adorable kittens that we currently have. So you can see, you know, they're just, there's orange tabbies, black and brown tabbies, black and white kittens, so many cuties, different ages, eight weeks and up. Um, So if you're looking for a little feline friend today, might be the perfect day to choose one. Kittens are so much fun. Yes. Now, from experience, I've learned that when you adopt two cats that you need to have a carrier for them, taking them home from the Capital Humane Society. Mm-hmm. You don't want to have your partner sit in the back seat and say, I will hold them. Because <laughs> That's uh, not, not going to work. What, what, do yes. cats, what do cats do? in a very, very strange environment that's moving and, and lights and things and sounds, they get nervous and they shed. 
I think uh-huh. for weeks afterwards, we were vacuuming off the headliner, the seats, the everything. I mean, they, they lost about half their body weight shedding in that back seat. And they tend to freak out and try and hide under the seats and, uh, you know, things right. like that. Yeah, it goes much better if they're in one of our carriers, which we provide. So it is um, part of the adoption uh, that you will get a nice, safe carrier to put them in. Awesome. Okay, well, we've got kittens, kittens, kittens. Their adoption fee is a half off today. And who's next? We'll talk about Cecilia. And she's an older kitten, but would still qualify for our promotion today. Five months old, so pretty. uh, Black and brown tabby cat, uh, loves to have fun, wants to find a home where she can play and purr all day. Isn't she pretty? Yeah, she is. Yeah. Oh, Cecilia, you're breaking my heart. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, was that Holly's? Um, Cecilia, you're breaking I'm my heart. Bacon, Simon, and Garfunkel, maybe. Okay, we'll have a listener that knows call in here. Oh, I'm sure. 402-474-5086. Look it up on the internet. Oh, it's more fun to have the listeners invited. That's true. Okay, Cecilia is joined by Snow White, and, and uh, <laughs> she is one of our <laughs> she's one of our adult cats, about a year old, domestic short hair, has a very uh, oh. engaged look on her face, pretty white wow. and black marking. Jim, look at that! A lovely cat. Mm-hmm. I am a princess. Wow! Uh-huh. Yeah. And for Snow White, do we have a Prince Charming to go along with that? <laughs> uh, we hope there's one, yes, and maybe they'll come in and that they'll choose to adopt her. The seven, the seven kittens. The Snow seven White and the kittens. seven kittens. Snow White and the seven kittens. Sure. Okay. Anybody next? Uh, we can talk. What you want to choose one? We have so many cuties. Uh, how about Zuna? Yeah. How about Zuna? Yeah, that's a good choice. So Zuna is a great cat looking for a home. She is at the Petco store on 56th and Highway 2. Um, we do sometimes have cats off-site, and she's about two years old, a domestic short hair, and mostly a gray-colored cat. And for the adoption, you do get the rest of the cat, too. There just isn't the front half, right? Right. right, right. <laughs> the whole cat is included. Beautiful. I don't know if I've seen a coat... Uh, uh, that's been this beautiful. It's uh, uh, sort of a uh, almost a coffee brown, and there's swirls of white in there. Oh, just what a beautiful cat. Take a look at Zuna. <clears throat> All these pictures are up at capitalhumanesociety.org, and uh, we talked about kittens, half-price adoption today, Cecilia, Snow White, and, and Zuna. Hey, what are hours today and tomorrow? Please visit us at our Pylock Pet Adoption Center. We are open today and tomorrow from 11 to 530. Okay, it's time for dogs now. And who do you want to start with? We'll start with Bruce. (laughs) And Bruce is a boxer, a big dog, about 67 pounds, a pretty fawn-colored dog, about a year old. We'll do one of those full body wiggles when he's happy. You know the one. (laughs) (laughs) And he is a really fun dog. Looking for a family, though, that does not have other dogs or cats and has older children. Um, But we know the right family is out there for Bruce. Okay, great-looking dog. Um, Bruce, he'd love to meet you today. And he's got a buddy whose name is? Mags. 
and Mags is a Rottweiler mix, and her picture is a little blurry because she is always moving, and that's the best we could do. <laughs> and she is always just wagging her tail wildly, a very happy, bouncy dog, about three years old, looking for an awesome family that likes to be on the go just like she does. Yep, I've told the story before of playing touch football one day with a Rottweiler. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Bruce, Megs, and? Next up is Kodak, a very handsome dog, about a year old, a pit bull. Uh, he has one blue eye, very striking. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's, he's looking for a great home uh, where he will get plenty of exercise. He loves to play, wants to be the life of the party. So if you have a lot of energy, then Kodak might be perfect for you. Great-looking dog. He'd love to meet you in person. Here's Charlene with hours open. Our Pylock Pet Adoption Center will be open Saturday and Sunday from 11 to 5.30. Bruce, Mags, and Kodak are the dogs. Um, a half-price kitten adoption today. Kittens are one year or um, younger. They're 50% off the adoption. And they're joined by Cecilia, Snow White, and Zuna. Okay, what do you have in store for the rest of the day, uh, Charlene? What are you up to? Yeah, so we're going to be pretty busy here um, with the Kitten Spectacular. We have a lot of awesome volunteers coming in to help us with a lot of cleaning that needs to get done. We're doing a volunteer orientation today for new volunteers who want to start helping us, and we are so grateful uh, the community supports us with their time. Um, So we're looking forward to meeting a lot of new faces. Okay, and uh, my best to Bob Downey, who uh, has just apparently announced his retirement. I'm the last person to always learn this stuff. I didn't, <laughs> I didn't know, but my best to him and to you and the rest of the staff. Thank you so much. Oh, we thank you for everything you do. Your support means a lot. Charlene and friends at the Capital Humane Society make them the first place you go when you want to adopt a dog or a cat. I'm Scott Colborn, and this is Exploring Unexplained Phenomena. Uh, Jim, before I bring our, our next guest up, mm-hmm. who is Brent Rains, we've got Brent standing by here. Um, I'd like to mention uh, the passing of our friend and colleague, uh, Rosemary Ellen Guiley. Mm-hmm. And she passed on Thursday, July 18th. Uh, for folks that are interested, if they look up um, Lauren Coleman, C-O-L-E-M-A-N, his uh, blog is copycateffect.blog. There's a great um, memorial written by Lauren on our common friend. I, I read Lauren's piece. It's excellent. I met uh, Rosemary 31 years ago as part of the conference team. We brought Rosemary Ellen Guiley to Lincoln, Nebraska in 1988 to speak at our event. Her paper was Crop Circles and High Strangeness. And I still have the poster board from that conference that's uh, in my office den library. And I looked up and, and looked at uh, her picture and thought about all the years that had passed here. Seems like yesterday. Uh, she was a guest on this program uh, many, many times. And uh, in 2008, I asked Rosemary to be a regular monthly contributor with an opening segment that we called In the Dark with Rosemary. And uh, in addition to the full guest appearances that she did, uh, she faithfully did that opening segment for 11 years. 
She contacted me in June of this year to say that she had better step down from that position because of her health and some of the challenges she was facing. To uh, anything Rosemary was involved in, she always made it better by her participation. Her grace, curiosity, intelligence, and depth and breadth of knowledge was evident in conversations with her, yet I never heard Rosemary talk down to a person. She treated others fairly and was interested in their thoughts and personal experiences. More recently, Rosemary heard my plea for prepaid phone cards donated from our listeners so that the program can call guests worldwide without putting any financial constraints on KZUM radio. And what did Rosemary do? She not only gave us one, she gave us multiple prepaid phone cards so that thousands of people can continue to hear our guests. And over the years, she also made personal donations to nonprofit, non-commercial KZUM radio during the fundraisers. On this program, we referred to Rosemary as the quote-unquote queen of the paranormal. Few others had the depth of knowledge that she possessed. When she wrote to me in June of 2019 that she was stepping down from her regular monthly segment because of her health, I asked Brett Rains to take over that monthly segment, and Rosemary wrote back and said, good choice on Brent. In more recent years, she founded a successful publishing company and has personally been involved in that arena as well as countless appearances at conferences and events worldwide. I believe her total number of books is 65 plus. Rosemary Ellen Guiley is survived by her husband, Joseph Redmills. My condolences to Joe and to her many friends and fans. We send our love and appreciation along with the acknowledgement that we are better off having had the privilege of know- knowing Rosemary Ellen Guiley. I'm Scott Colborn. This is Exploring Unexplained Phenomena. It's great to have you with us. And next up is our friend Brent Rains with the segment, What is Reality? And Brent, had you heard that Rosemary uh, was, was ill? Uh, yes, uh, I had. And, uh, you know, I, she, I think she'd been ill for a pretty good while, and she just, you know, wanted to continue and do as much as she could. Mm-hmm. And uh, she, she didn't, uh, tried not to let it slow her down at all. And she continued the work that she, you know, felt was very in- important. And uh, she continued to contribute and to, uh, to make appearances and, and, and do everything she could until it was just impossible, you know, is what I have heard. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm really deeply humbled and, and honored, you know, that uh, what she had told you when you informed her about, you know, having giving me this this monthly spot here on Kazoom and uh because you know she was um person that so many of us looked up to and uh knew personally. I mean she she um she went to so many conferences and events over the years and uh um was associate editor for Fake magazine. I don't know how she did all the things that she did, you know. I she don't was know either. Constantly on the go. 
she she had so much going on. I'm just with you. How did she do all that? I don't know. I mean, she worked uh, harder than uh, hardly any any. I can't hardly think of anybody that worked any harder than Rosemary Ellen Guiley. <laughs> yeah, I and uh, I know that you've written, I, uh, you've written now three books. I just got by the way your John Keel book. Um, I just got oh, it. Great. Looking forward I, to reading that. I know you've written three books, and you know what writing three books takes. How about 65? Yeah, I mean, uh, well, <laughs> uh, her and and Brad Steiger, I mean, he was up to nearly, I think, 200. Uh, <laughs> but uh, Brad Brad was in the running longer, too. I mean, he was involved in the field from the um, hmm, late 50s. And uh, uh, Rosemary... She'd been involved a few decades, but not quite as long as, as, as Brad Steiger had been, but uh, still phenomenal, and all the other duties she took on uh, is tr- truly amazing. Well, uh, she, and, she uh, said good choice on Brent because uh, you share some common things that I do and that Rosemary uh, did. You have a very broad range of interests because you think that, uh, without trying to paraphrase your philosophy, Brent, that... By looking at a multitude of subjects, you're getting more information about what is reality than by just focusing narrowly on um, one aspect to the exclusion of everything else. She was a lot. Yeah, like because that. Um, you know this 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 area of research, this area of investigation is is really so complex, and and um, I've seen so many instances where investigators of one particular, let's say, discipline will go into and look at a, a case and the person will say, you know, say they're a ufologist, will say, well, I've, yeah, I had this sighting and, uh, you know, and they just concentrate on that one sighting. If they mention poltergeist or they mention, you know, they had an experience with uh, a cryptid, well, they say, well, that's that's not our field, you know. Um, with you know, there's, there's investigators, fortunately, who, and I hope maybe growing numbers, uh, who are looking into the, the other possible interrelated aspects, because, I mean, it just seems that uh, many of these experiences, uh, it's not a lot of times just that one single event. They've had a series of of other experiences, and, and the, the whole, you know, I always say that uh, you need to look at... Uh, let the, the witness do kind of like an unstructured, do an un, unstructured interview with them. Just let them initially tell what they want to tell you. Just tell their story. Start from the beginning and, and uh, you know, just periodically interrupt them for some clarity if needed. But otherwise, wait till they get to the, they've exhausted their, their knowledge of things that happen. And uh, then interject with, with your, your questions. But let them tell what they feel is significant what they feel uh, uh, was mysterious in their lives, and you know, and so I really subscribe to you know what John Keel and Rosemary Guiley felt that you know you need to look at them kind of a, a full spectrum of these unexplained events and see if they could be interconnected, you know, mm-hmm, I agree. Uh, rather than assuming, uh, as many of us have done over the years, and myself included in the beginning. I mean, I, I thought it was strictly nuts and bolts, et and and uh, I brush, you know, stuff aside too. <laughs> but uh, over time, uh, people like Rosemary and John Keel and and Jacques Valley, other people uh, came along, and uh, 
you know, they uh, presented a different uh, perspective. Uh, this is Brent Rains. And Brent, tell the folks where you make your home. Where do you hang out most of the time? Oh, well, where I hang out? I mean, I live here in Waynesboro, Tennessee, uh, about, I guess, 9,500 miles uh, sort of south southwest of of Music City, Nashville. I'm almost into Alabama <laughs> and a little town here. Uh, but uh, anyway, I, I since 1985, I've been putting out this newsletter. Initially, it was paper, and I called it Paraufology Forum, uh, Xeroxed and mimeographed for a while. And, and now we're online. It's alternate perceptions. And uh, we come out monthly, the first of, of each month, and we have archived issues. And uh, I also do interviews, uh, audio interviews, and uh, we also have different feature articles. And I have a regular column called Reality Checking, so I'm always questioning reality. And uh, how can folks and find your, your newsletter? Well, they can, uh, they can Google it, Alternate Perceptions, or they can go to apmagazine.info, mm-hmm. and uh, they'll, they'll locate me soon enough that way. I, I have a relative up in uh, Maine who was trying to track me down and, and uh, started going online and said, boy, you were easy to find. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, but, I, uh, I know that, that the passing of Rosemary was um, a shock to many of us. Uh, what other news items have crossed your desk in the last 30 days that have um, caused you to sit back and put your hand on your chin and go, huh, what? Oh, well, I'm glad you asked because um, just yesterday, a, um, a psychic friend here in Tennessee uh, had uh, contacted me, sent me a, an email at uh, about 627 in the morning and wanted to talk to me, said, I had a little visit from a friend of yours this morning. Huh. And uh, so I figured, well, it's, it's a spirit-related thing. So a little after 8 a.m., she called me up. I was trying to call her, and she called me, got a hold of me instead and, and uh, found out it was Rosemary. Oh, my goodness. And uh, she, she said, I really don't know anything about her, but I know on Facebook I've seen all the posts about her passing. I know a lot of people thought a great deal of her, and she said, I, uh, I know that uh, she helped you with your, your book on John Keel. And uh, so I asked her, well, what happened? She said that she was you know, getting ready for work that morning. She was in front of this big mirror. She was applying her eyeliner, and she said up in the top right corner, she saw a face, and she said, I recognized it. It was this Rosemary Guiley, because I've seen her face, you know, the pictures of her on, on Facebook. And uh, she said there was like a telepathic message that went into her brain. <laughs> in, her, in her head, she heard the words, there was an exit point, and I took it. And I found out that this is the same mirror that she uses with friends. She has like a meditation group uh, for spirit contact. And she says uh, she's had experiences with uh, other people looking into the mirror and seeing spirits. And, and a lot of times she says it's amazing because they'll find out they're all seeing the same thing. Um, but anyway, I, I thought, well, you know, you've had a, on your show guests, uh, Tanya and, and Joy Medoya, Medea, Medea, uh, who wrote the book, watch out for the hallway. 
about this haunted library over in North Carolina. They mm-hmm. investigated for two years, and and Rosemary's uh, Visionary Living published the uh, this book last year, and that was quite a quite a story there. And and they've known Rosemary for nearly ten years, and they're both pretty pretty darn psychic. And so I contacted them to see if they've heard anything, and. Uh, and they've had a number of experiences themselves, and they gave me permission to share this on on, on the show. So uh, they had they both said they'd had visions for weeks that Rosemary was medicated and in bed, and uh, you know her husband Joe later confirmed that they were correct on on, on these different details. And uh, a few weeks ago, Joe uh, Joy had had. Uh, the Medea had had the experience of uh, uh, having a dream where he said that uh, Rosemary was down by this river, and then she turned to him and smiled and then faded. And uh, they're they're thinking that uh, both him and his wife Tanya that that she was testing the waters and looking for an exit from this reality to the next, and. Uh, they, uh, Joe had confided to both, you know, both of them how, how bad it was, you know, and, and such, uh, you know, her condition had gotten. And the Thursday before she passed, Joy had been working on his computer, concentrating on, on what he was doing. And suddenly his head jerked up and, uh, he started looking up at a collection of books on the shelf. And, uh, one of them was, uh, and then there was a uh, one of his favorite pictures of Rosemary that she had signed there. And then uh, the next thing he knew, there was uh, Rosemary standing there in the room briefly. And then he said, after reading my email, he realized that, you know, this an equal distance between the books and the photo of Rosemary, there was the scrying mirror that she had given them. And he said, I think I was supposed to be reminded of the scrying mirror. And they, they both feel that uh, Rosemary is kind of bringing all of us together. And uh, the the psychic here in Tennessee didn't want to be named because she said she just feels that she right. was a, a conduit to help bring this bring us all together on this so we're going to all of us this weekend uh the medias and myself try to uh maybe do a a ghost box type thing activity and see if we can you know communicate with uh rosemary get some something some kind of interactive feedback here well uh, i wish you i wish you well at an endeavor and and uh to you and joey and tanya and to all the folks that, that uh, knew Rosemary, and certainly to her husband, Joseph, um, I wish everyone all the best uh, with our deepest appreciation and with much fondness. Uh, Brent, we've got a, well, we're out of time here, so we've got to move on. I'm going to wish you well on this wonderful weekend, and it's good to have you, our Tennessee friend, on the show. Well, thank you very much. I, Scott, I appreciate it, and it's. Uh, I'm looking forward to having doing many more shows with you. Okay, uh, Brent Rains, 
the author and editor of Alternate Perceptions magazine. You can sign up for this and receive this as soon as it comes out of his computer. It's apmagazine.info. I'm Scott Colborn, and uh, after this bottom-of-the-hour break, we'll be back with our special guest, Nick Redfern, the author of Cover-Ups and Secrets, The Complete Guide to Government Conspiracies, Manipulations, and Deceptions. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Voice of the Blues in Lincoln, Nebraska, KZUM Lincoln and KZUM HD. Salute the life, spirit, and music of Jerry Garcia and the Grateful Dead, all while supporting KZUM. Our Jerry Garcia birthday bash returns on Friday, August 2nd, 8.30 p.m. at Bodega's Alley, with live performances by the Jerry Pranksters and Root Marm Chicken Farm Jug Band. All proceeds from cover charges at the door and raffle ticket sales will benefit KZUM. That's the Jerry Garcia Birthday Bash, a KZUM benefit on Friday, August 2nd, beginning at 8.30 at Bodega's Alley. Find out more at kzum.org. This program is made possible in part by a grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support for KZUM comes from Ignite Lincoln, presenting 11 speakers sharing their ideas and stories while building community, with 100% of all proceeds given to local nonprofits. August 15th at the Rococo Theater. Doors open at 6.30. Speakers begin at 7 p.m. Ages 18 and over are welcome. Tickets, details, and more at IgniteLincoln.org. My name is Manny Morales. I'm 45 and I coach youth football. It's still hard to believe because the high school me was a work in progress. But big brothers, big sisters give me a real role model. And the young me needed a role model bad. My bigger brother's name is Ray. And Ray is the reason that this 7-year-old grows up to be a role model himself. Whether you donate money or time, you're helping Big Brothers Big Sisters help a child. Start something today at BigBrothersBigSisters.org. Brought to you by Big Brothers Big Sisters and the Ad Council. The full moon lights the silver rails winding around dark mountains and over steep gorges of jagged rock in one freezing cold rushing Black Mountain River. I wish there was enough time to describe all of the funny twists and turns that led up to now, but there isn't enough time because there's a ticking clock and the two passengers we care most about don't know anything about it. To see what happens next, visit read.gov to read The Exquisite Corpse, a riveting adventure pieced together by John Sheska, Shannon Hale, Daniel Handler, and other popular authors. Explore new worlds. Read. Brought to you by the Library of Congress and the Ad Council. Hi, I'm Dick Valverde, and I'd like to invite you on a musical journey of both sound and rhythm to a place I call Mesoterra. We'll travel far from commercial culture and just a step or two away from the abstract. So join me on Saturday afternoons, 3 to 5 p.m. for Mesoterra, right here on KZUM.
Scott Colborn with Exploring Unexplained Phenomena. It's great to have you with us. Good morning. If you're in Lincoln, Nebraska, if you're in Texas, we've got a couple of people listening. Uh, looks like there's one from Germany, one from Russia, lots of folks from the U.S. here. Great to have you with us on this Saturday morning. Our main guest is Nick Redfern. And Nick has been on the show multiple times. And he's written a brand new book called Cover-Ups and Secrets, The Complete Guide to Government Conspiracies, Manipulations, and Deceptions. From the publisher's website, from the dark agendas restricting access to the Internet, banning books, and suppressing cancer cures, to the cynical murders of politicians, scientists, world leaders, and even Princess Diana in the name of national security, cover-ups and secrets, the complete guide to government conspiracies, manipulations, and deceptions, reveals dozens of nefarious conspiracies, plots, hidden agendas, and betrayals. Always a favorite with our audience, folks, here is Nick Redfern. Hi, Nick. Good morning to you. Hey, Scott. How's it going? It's going great. And how's Texas doing? Are you just AC full-on all the time? <laughs> yep. <laughs> <laughs> it's like that from like May till about <laughs> the end of September. <laughs> uh, Nick, you've, uh, you've heard the news about Rosemary, certainly, uh, and mm, you may have heard yeah. the early part of the show. Uh, is there anything you'd like to add from, from your own heart and soul to thoughts of Rosemary? Well, yeah, I mean, I knew uh, Rosemary well. You know, we often sort of ran into each other at conferences because we very often sort of covered similar areas, you know, paranormal and UFOs and different things. And, um, you know, she was, <clears throat> excuse me, she was a, you know, very nice lady and friendly and um, enthusiastic about what she did. And, um and very down to earth, you know. You could just uh, at the end of the conferences, we'd all sort of sit down and have a few drinks and dinner, and just you know, just have a good time, you know. And um, and 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 in terms of her work, you know, she's left a huge legacy behind her as well um, on multiple different subjects. So um, you know, she'll be uh, missed on several fronts. You know, the the friendship connections and you know the, the writing as well mm-hmm. uh, about a year a little bit over a year ago um brad steiger passed on another mm-hmm. stalwart figure in the paranormal of uh, who had authored over i think a hundred books um and so uh do we have anybody that is uh younger coming along that that can pick up any of these reins. Uh, is the paranormal made up now of lots of old guys and gals, or are there some young people coming along, Nick? That's a good question. I mean, there are um, some people, you know, younger people, the 20s and so on, um, in ufology. But um, in terms of what uh, Rosemary used to do, in terms of, you know, covering multiple different subjects, which is exactly what Brad did as well. I actually, unfortunately, don't see many people, you know, 20s or whatever, 
um, coming up and covering just such a, a you know a wide range of of different paranormal subjects. You know, it tends to be they're sort of focusing on Bigfoot or they're focusing on UFOs, but they're not. They don't seem to have that angle that that, that Rosemary did. Mm-hmm. Well, that's an angle that you also share, Nick. You've got a, a broad range of interests, and uh, by being a generalist, how does that ultimately serve one? Well, you know, I mean, I am someone who has a lot of interest, you know, whether it's UFOs, strange creatures like Loch Ness Monster, Chupacabra, um, you know, and just black-eyed children, men in black, all those different kinds of things which aren't necessarily interconnected. So I do write on a lot of different subjects, and um, I feel it's not a problem. I think some researchers... You know, they prefer to be known as the person who investigates Roswell, you know, mm-hmm. or the person who investigates ghosts. But uh, I don't see any issue. You know, if you have a deep interest in one particular story or a case um, or a phenomenon, I don't see there's any problem with sort of, um, you know, spreading yourself um, into various genres and realms. Um, I think it's a good thing, actually, you know, if you can put out a lot of material. Um, on a lot of different subjects. And I, kudos to you for doing so. And I, I am also, although not of your stature, I'm also a generalist because I've, I've told people that if you, if you held up your hand and you specialized in your first finger, you'd be a really good expert at that index finger to the exclusion of the rest of the fingers and how they might relate to that index finger. But if you have an appreciation for all those digits um, and how they work together, you've got a better understanding of, of the whole. So I am also a generalist. Uh, what, what, was the, what was the idea behind cover-ups and secrets? Well, um, Roger, Roger Janecki, who runs Visible Ink Press, um, I've done about 10 books with Roger, and um, you know we're always sort of looking at new ideas for to project, you know, into the next six months, year, and so on. And um, Roger said, would you be interested in doing a book that um, isn't sort of just one particular topic, you know, but with multiple different subjects, but all under the banner of cover-ups? And I thought it was a good idea because, you know, with these books, what I like about the the format that Visible Ink Press do, you know, they're large books, they're sort of 400 pages long, but but the fact that each one, each chapter is on a different subject, you can dip in them, you know, you can go from page 1 to 400, or you can just dip in at page 28 and read that chapter. I think people like that, where they can, um, you know, uh, read like a five-page chapter here, and then a ten-page chapter there, and they don't have to worry about they've got to read this one before that one, you know, and I think, I think people like that um, approach. And so then the, then the angle from there was, well, what cases and uh, what stories and are we going to put in there? So I put a, a list together for Roger of uh, what I thought would be interesting cover-up stories, many of them that people wouldn't have known about. And, and so they really can, you know, just go from chapter to chapter. Mm-hmm. I, I agree with everything that you just said. Um, I, uh, because of our nonprofit status, I can't give the exact price of this book, but I will say that for a book that is a large format, 
over 400 pages that the retail price is very, very reasonable. And uh, my producer and co-host, Jim, says he likes the book because the front cover is green. (laughs) (laughs) Well, funnily enough, that that sort of green and yellow, it's like green background and yellow writing. They've done that with um, several of my books. And and admittedly, you know, that that kind of green and yellow does sort of stand out, you know. It does. um, and for publishers' perspectives, you know, the cover um, is an important thing, you know, to catch people's eye. I mean, it's it's no surprise, I don't think, um, going back to 1987 with um, Whitley Strieber's book Communion, you know, that cover, that eerie cover of the alien on the front, that really did sort of catch people's attention. So, you know, the, the covers on books from the publisher's perspective, you know, they, it is an important angle. Yeah. Years ago, Nick, in fact, for a total of 19 years, I operated the bookstore, and I know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> the covers are everything, you know. And, uh, yes, especially the combination of the green with the red dot and that group of guys that's looking right at you. <laughs> that catches the eye. Yeah, they do a good job, and, um, you know, a lot of photographs. I think this one's got around about 130 pictures in it, something like that. Nick, would it be uh, okay if I jumped around in some of these topics? Oh, uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, tell me about government or the military's use of holograms. Mm. Now, when I was a lot younger, I heard about an allegation that the U.S. was going to try to stage, back in the 1960s, an invasion of Cuba and that they were going to surface a submarine off the coast of Cuba, and with the atmospherics being just so, they were going to use a hologram projector and project the image of Jesus Christ onto the cloud banks over Cuba, thus um, exciting the primarily predominantly Catholic-based population of Cuba to unrest uh, as a way of, of aiding this, uh, this planned invasion. Uh, and I thought to myself, wait a minute, we've got, proje- we've got the ability back in 1961, 62, to do this? Wow. Well, yeah, they- it's a bizarre story, but it is 100% true. And uh, you're right, it does go back to the early 60s and Fidel Castro and Cuba. And the the government today has actually declassified the files um, on this particular event or this experiment. And um, you can find it in the pages of a now declassified government document, uh, which was published on November 20, 1975, but much of it was held back then, and it's titled Alleged Assassination Plots Involving Foreign Leaders. And um, it was a select committee um, U.S. government uh, report. And basically what the story was, um, bear in mind the time frame, you know, when... um, Castro was perceived as being, you know, this dangerous figure, and then of course it elevated um, with the, with you know, with the, the missile crisis and the Bay of Pigs and things like that. And so the plan was to see if they could do it was to, as you said, create sort of a, a faked second coming, and they had several ideas. 
One was to have, as you said, submarines off the coast of Cuba and surfacing and then have um, sort of spotlights aiming at the clouds, but with an image of the face and body of Jesus Christ um, looming in the clouds. And on top of that, they were planning on having small aircraft with muffled engines flying through the clouds and broadcasting what they hoped the people of Cuba would think was the, the voice of Jesus. And the the message would be to renounce um, Fidel Castro and embrace the rest of the world, that kind of thing. Now, it was actually a very ambitious program, but it turned out to be overly ambitious in the sense that um, there were so many ifs and buts uh, in the sense that they couldn't figure out or guarantee, you know, when the clouds would be thick enough to project something or, you know, to hide the aircraft in. And they weren't sure also if the, um, like the loudspeakers broadcasting the alleged voice of Jesus, they couldn't guarantee that the, you know, the voices would be picked up on the ground and so on. So in that sense, it was, it was pretty much shelved. And, um, and it, you know, it was shown that, as I said, it was sort of overambitious. But what it does demonstrate are some of the really weird um, operations and projects of the government that were hidden and covered up for years, um, only to surface decades later. And, and certainly that one, you know, the, the faking of a second coming of Jesus to overthrow Castro, you know, it's kind of like one of those things that's you just so unbelievable, but it actually was true. Mm -hmm. uh, Nick, as you probably know, I've been interested for a long time in the uh, Rendlesham Forest events. Mm -hmm. um, back in the early days, Ray Boucher uh, and I were uh, American researchers that we looked into that and tracked down some of the servicemen, some of the eyewitnesses. We always called it uh, either Bentwaters or Woodbridge. It was only later that we embraced the English use of the, of the term Rendlesham Forest to, to describe or define the event. Uh, and how does the use of holograms play into uh, these events that occurred in December of 1980 in a forest that was between RAF Bentwaters and RAF Woodbridge, uh, perhaps on more than one night, on multiple nights. How, how do holograms potentially mm. figure into that? Well, this part of the story actually came to me from Ray. Um, now, for people who don't know, the Rendlesham Forest case, in terms of its sort of notoriety and visibility, it's sort of like a, a British version of Roswell. You know, mm -hmm. it's a, sort of a, a defining famous case. Now, the, as you said, the story is that um, just between these two um, British um, military bases, Bentwaters and Woodbridge, one of them which had been leased out to American personnel, um, over the course of several nights, um, UFO activity was seen in and around and above the forest, Rendlesham Forest, and there was a big cover-up and, you know, people told, you won't talk about this, etc., etc. Now, Ray spent a lot of time in the 1980s looking into this and, um, you know, even speaking to people in authority, you know, to try and get files and data released. And it was during this time that Ray was approached by two guys working on a program in the Department of Defense, 
and which had um, a UFO connection. And they told Ray that Rendlesham was not a UFO event, but sort of a government experiment using extremely um, sort of highly advanced holograms as a means to see how, you know, how the human mind could be altered and, and fooled. In other words, you know, let's let's try it on our own personnel to see if we can convince them they're seeing aliens. And if it works, well, then it, perhaps it would work on the Russians as well or the Chinese. So that is the, in sort of a, you know, in a boiled down fashion, uh, that's exactly what Ray was told, that um, Rendlesham was a, a government military experiment using not just sort of um, rudimentary holograms, but really sophisticated ones, and which in a strange way could manipulate the human mind as well. And, um, you know, it sounds like some sort of bizarre psychedelic experiment, which in many ways it could have been something along that as well, mm -hmm. you know, that the minds of, the, of some of the personnel were affected alongside... Um, the use of these sophisticated holograms and um, and of course testing it on friendly land you know I think that's an important thing to note as well you know tested just on the outside on the fringes of a military base in England right around Christmas Eve and Christmas Day when most people you know were either on vacation in the UK or just at home you know celebrating Christmas and so in that sense um, it would be the ideal time. And, of course, you know, if um, if the story got out at that particular time, which it didn't, um, I'm pretty sure they would have sort of put out stories about, oh, it must have been Santa Claus flying by, you know. Mm -hmm. I, think, I think they planned everything in, a, in an event that um, it might come out, and, and it didn't until 1983. But... Um, you know, it, the implications um, are twofold. One is that it demonstrates that the possibility that, you know, government agencies have highly advanced holographic technology. And it also demonstrates that if it's true, then one of the world's biggest UFO events was actually not a UFO event at all, but it was sort of a ruse, you know, um, uh, like, like a, a camouflage, if you like, for, for something else. In 1992, I was involved with some people, Lincoln, Nebraska, uh, attempting to put together a, a conference on the unexplained. And because of my interest in uh, Bent Waters, Woodbridge, and Rendlesham Forest, uh, I was trying to uh, include a subset of speakers, um, including some people that, that serve there. And I was in contact with several of the eyewitnesses, um, and who encouraged me to contact Colonel Charles Halt, the deputy base commander. Uh, and so I reached out and got a hold of Halt, and we were talking on the phone, and I was exploring uh, whether he would be interested and could, with his schedule, come to Lincoln for this 1992 conference. And it was all sort of lining up like, well, I might come if so-and-so comes. And I would talk to them, and they'd say, well... I might come if so-and-so comes. And so it was all a house of cards. But in the middle of this phone conversation, Halt says, just out of the blue, have you ever heard of the NSA? And I said, well, National Security Agency. And so I wondered 
later on, um, because he never answered directly or volunteered any more information about why he suddenly changed course and said that, was he either giving me a clue that the NSA was involved in the events in 1980, and or was he saying, I can't talk more deeply because somebody is listening right now? Oh, I see. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that, that's interesting. I mean, uh, I actually saw uh, Charles Holt um, about three months ago. We were both speaking at a conference in Edinburgh, Texas, and um, we had a good long chat all about the case and um, different aspects of it. And um, so, yeah, it's sort of, uh, you know, he's still very much um, promoting it and you know, sharing his memories for, you know, for audiences. Uh, this is Nick Redfern, and the book runs in excess of 400 pages. It's called Cover-Ups and Secrets, The Complete Guide to Government Conspiracies, Manipulations, and Deceptions. Uh, it's published by Visible Ink Press, and the layout is that, as Nick described earlier, you can pick a, a chapter and read that, um, or as I've done this week, you can read this thing cover to cover. Uh, there's an extensive index in back as well. You can look up people, subjects, etc., and go directly to that. So it's a well-done book. We'll continue our conversation with Nick Redfern um, right after these announcements. I'm Scott Colborn, and stay tuned because, as you know, there's going to be more. Voice of the Blues in Lincoln, Nebraska, KZUM Lincoln and KZUM HD. Support for KZUM comes from family-owned and operated Butheris Mason and Love Funeral Home at 40th and A Streets in Lincoln, offering services that allow families to plan ahead according to personal wishes, chapel facilities to accommodate all faiths, and grief support materials for the family following a service. More information is available at 402-488-0934 and online at bmlfh.com. KZUM Summer Concert Series at Stransky Park wraps up this Thursday, August 1st with the Chris Lager Band, plus food by Mary Ellens. Special thanks to this season's sponsors, Dietz Music, Butheris Maser and Love, and Shirts 101. That's this Thursday, August 1st, 7 o'clock at Stransky Park near 17th and Harrison. Find out more on kzum.org. Support for KZUM comes from Maha Music Festival. Friday and Saturday, August 16th and 17th at Omaha's Exarban Village. Featuring Lizzo, Jenny Lewis, Muscle Cousins, Shark Week, Omaha Girls Rock, and many more. Plus activities from over 30 local nonprofits. Passes, schedule, and more at MahaFestival.com. And Lincoln Calling, the annual four-day music and art festival, September 18th through 22nd in downtown Lincoln. Featuring workshops and panel discussions on wellness, entrepreneurship, music, and culture. Plus over 80 bands at eight venues, as well as an outdoor night market. Full lineup and other festival info on Facebook and LincolnCalling.com. My name is Manny Morales. I'm 45 and I coach youth football. 
It's still hard to believe because the high school me was a work in progress. But big brothers, big sisters give me a real role model. And the young me needed a role model bad. My bigger brother's name is Ray. And Ray is the reason that this seven-year-old grows up to be a role model himself. Whether you donate money or time, you're helping Big Brothers Big Sisters help a child. Start something today at BigBrothersBigSisters.org. Brought to you by Big Brothers Big Sisters and the Ad Council. Hi, I'm Vic Valverde, and I'd like to invite you on a musical journey of both sound and rhythm to a place I call Mesoterra. We'll travel far from commercial culture and just a step or two away from the abstract. So join me on Saturday afternoons, 3 to 5 p.m. for Mesoterra, right here on KZUM. Scott Colborn with Jim Shorney. We are exploring unexplained phenomena. All the best from us to you. And it's great to have you listing in Lincoln, in the U.S., in Europe, and all over the world. If you like the program today, no reason why you shouldn't like it. We're going to have this archived in about a week, and it's very, very easy to find, kzum.org slash EUP. And that'll kick you into the first of the archive websites uh, that will take you back all the way to February 2017. And so we've got all the programs from that date forward. And then if you're really adventurous and you've got some time on your hands, try eupradio.net. And guess what? That's all the way back to 2005. So you've got a lot of listing in store. And uh, joining us once again today is Nick Redfern. He's been a guest multiple times in the past. And the audience always says that they like Nick. They want to have more Nick Redford. And so I hope you're enjoying the program as, as much as, as I am. Nick, uh, tell us what you know about the September 11th tragedies with the Twin Towers. You know, there, there has been so much speculation, um, conspiratorial, there are multiple websites that are promoting the idea that for a myriad number of reasons, the towers were, quote-unquote, a controlled demolition, and there are engineers. I've read their reports on those websites. Most of the engineers that I've met are pretty down-to-earth, fact-orientated, straight-laced. They're not prone to wild speculation. Before they jump in, they want to have lots of facts. Uh, did you learn anything when you did the research for the September 11th inclusion? Well, you know, it's, it's one of these situations where I think it sort of polarizes people into sort of two camps. One that's, you know, the official story is the correct one. And on the other side, you have this vast conspiracy, you know, and, um, my personal view, you know, I don't buy any of these stories about holographic planes hitting the, the towers and things like that. I think that's nonsense. I think the, I mean, I address that in the book, but from the, you know, but I don't personally hold to that theory that, um, you know, that the planes weren't really there, that it was holograms, which is actually one of the very popular um, conspiracy theories, um, 
before 9-11. And, but for me, you know, I, I just cannot buy into that, the idea that, you know, the planes weren't really there. To me, that's just bizarre. Um, and so, uh, you know, and of course the other big issue is that, well, if they were if they were holograms, what happened to the passengers and the and the and the uh, crew? You know, so um, 9/11 is one of those where I think there are some legitimate questions to be asked, but there's a, a huge amount of garbage revolving around it as well. Um, now, and, but I do understand, you know, how people have, um, you know, sort of looked at the footage of the, the towers coming down and, you know, you can see why people have said, you know, it looks like a, a planned demolition, that kind of thing. Um, you know, one of the things that I did find suspicious, you know, was this issue of when the towers came down and there was so much damage and just disaster, you know, all over the place, and yet they still were able to recover the passport of one of the of the terrorists. You know, that's of all you know, of all everything that was found that or wasn't found, it was just totally destroyed, you know, that was found. So, you know, there's a lot of there are a lot of weird things surrounding the the case itself, but I think we need to put it all in perspective and in some cases it lacks perspective. Mm-hmm. There was a, a money insurance angle too that I heard uh, of rumors of that uh, was connected to the the buildings. There was a shorter third tower that also mm-hmm. fell, and uh, it was not hit by an airplane. People have talked about correct, yeah. how that came down. Uh, I've I've read reports of some very same people that say that that. Um, these larger twin towers were built to withstand the impact of an airplane. Um, they were built to withstand uh, winds in excess of 160 miles an hour. Uh, and yet, as we know, they, they both came down. And so how, how was that? Uh, and I've read reports about the heat that it takes to melt steel girders. And would that have been uh, affected with uh, jet fuel burning. And uh, so there's a number of gray areas there. Uh, I, anytime I talk about this, I, I also want to say in the same breath that I am not disrespecting uh, anybody that perished there that day, the memories, their lives, uh, the sacrifices that people made to try to help those that were hurt, injured, that were dying, uh, so none of what we should talk about is in any way disrespecting those memories and those those wonderful people. Yeah, that's right. We're just trying to figure out... For me, it's a case of trying to figure out why there seems to be certain weird anomalies, you know, in the whole thing. Um, a lot of the stuff surrounding it, you know, isn't straightforward. It does require a lot of... Um, questions and investigations and um you know I, I think i mean there's also the you know the coincidental angle um that on the very same morning there was actually um a military exercise um basically uh, very similar to the the actual scenario that occurred on september 11 and which 
confused people in the military, you know, as to whether it was actually, um, you know, a real event or if it was part of this um, legitimate um, sort of war game that was actually going on. People, a lot of people don't realise that, you know. Again, that was sort of like a weird, you know, coincidental tie-in. Was there a, a chapter that um, that you had included in your outline, and when you fleshed it out, became a favorite of yours? Not so much that it was a surprise what you learned, but um, that that you were really glad that you included that in the book. Is there any chapter that really stands out for you, Nick? Um, well, yeah, one of the ones that sort of. Um I enjoyed doing, but also it opened my eyes as well, was actually going back to the, the Second World War when the FBI was deeply concerned about potential biological and bacteriological attacks on the United States. Now, of course, in today's world, you know, with anthrax attacks and things like that, we hear a lot about bio-warfare, you know, and the possibility of terrorist attacks and things like that. Mm-hmm. You don't necessarily hear very much at all um, about the fact that this was actually a big concern to the government 70 years ago. And, um, you know, the idea of of terrorists actually attacking us in the 40s and early 50s with bio-warfare. And through the uh, terms of the Freedom Information Act, I got a huge file, about 700, 800 pages from the FBI, which... Um, detailed all their research and investigations from the 40s through the 50s, um, looking at the ways in which the FBI was concerned that, you know, foreign agents could um, affect the United States. And the the biggest concern that the FBI had back then was that terrorists would sneak or sort of, you know, get into the United States. And the biggest concern they had was that terrorists would use bio-warfare to cripple the um, the United States uh, food chain. We're talking about quite literally sort of wiping out all the cattle, pigs, sheep, everything. And and this was seen as not just a, a theoretical possibility, there were deep concerns because the FBI actually heard rumours um, that uh, sort of hostile forces were planning to do this, and the idea would be quite literally to bring you know the the food chain in the US to a grinding halt, and which would be you know disastrous. And uh, they did a lot of research to uh, determine you know, outbreaks of just legitimate diseases? Was it just a, a, you know, a random outbreak of nature? Or was somebody, you know, messing around and trying to kickstart something, you know, like a, to, which would lead to, you know, just a big catastrophe? And um, But it was primarily the cattle herd that the FBI was worried about. And um, they consulted a lot of scientists and uh, people in the medical field and the veterinary uh, field, just to try and figure out, is someone trying to attack us? Is someone trying to do this? And and it really is sort of like a fascinating early, I won't say quite 
Cold War era, it was just slightly before the Cold War kicked off and after the Second World War finished. Um, but the FBI took all of this very, very seriously. And, um, you know, when there was sort of an outbreak of a disease that killed like 40, 50 pigs or something like that, they in 47, 48, they actually sent their agents out to the farms to speak um, to the ranchers and things like that just to try and make sure that, you know, this wasn't some sort of, you know, uh, preempted attack or something like that. Mm-hmm. From that same period of time... Um in the book, you mention the actor Errol Flynn, mm. and he was always a favorite of mine as I was a young man growing up. Uh, watched a lot of his movies. Uh, Gunga Din is still one of my all-time favorites, especially at the very end where they're holding out to the last band and then the reinforcements arrive with the sound of the pipes. And Nick, because uh, you're from that area of the world too, I don't know if the the... The Highland pipes do much for your blood, but it it really uh, really gets me going. Uh, and so, I was interested to read that that there were several observations of Errol Flynn. One was that he was a suspected Nazi sympathizer, and had made uh, one or more quotes that caused eyebrows to go up about. Uh, Uh, anti-Semitic remarks that he had made. And the other observation I found just as interesting was that in all likelihood he had offered his services to British intelligence to serve as an agent in World War II because a lot of the showbiz people uh, had more freer reign, if you will, and could go places that ordinary people couldn't. They could mix with people in social stratas that most of us couldn't. And so Errol Flynn was rumored to have worked actually for the Allies. Yeah, this is where it gets um, a very sort of controversial and confusing story because on the one hand, you have um, Errol Flynn reportedly, you know, being like a Nazi sympathizer. And then the other side, as you said, that um, possibly he was sort of in league with British intelligence, which gives rise to the idea, was he sort of working as a double agent? Mm-hmm. And if he was working a double a- as a double agent, well, who who was the actual one he was really working for, you know? And this even gave rise to the idea of like a triple agent, you know, pretending to be this, uh, but pretending to be that as well, you know, and, and then possibly even pretending to be the first thing when it actually wasn't, you know, so it got really confusing. But um, there's no doubt that um, that there were deep concerns that he was tied to the Nazis. For example, the FBI, uh, again, have declassified their files on Errol Flynn, which run to hundreds and hundreds of pages, and they're files from three or four other U.S. intelligence agencies from the Second World War era. They've released some of their files on Errol Flynn, but not all of them have been declassified. Now, it is a fact that, um, for example, the Office of Censorship, as it was known back in the 1940s, um, they were actually following Errol Flynn and were able to confirm that a number of his girlfriends weren't just Germans, but they were Nazis, and that some of them had had actually sort of worked with the Nazis. And um, 
uh, other agencies, um, like the Office of um, Special Services, the OSS, which became the or was the sort of the impetus for the CIA, mm-hmm. they were looking into him as well, as were MI5, which is the British equivalent of um, the FBI. MI5 had put together files on um, Errol Flynn. Now, in the 1990s, an attempt was made to try and get hold of MI5's um, files on Errol Flynn. And we know such files existed, but MI5 said they couldn't find any material, which is um, a response we often get in relation to sensitive files. Um, you know, the idea that, oh, well, sorry, you know, we did have files, but we're not able to find them now, you know. That's kind of like with Roswell. Right. Um, you know, a lot of the files which we know should exist can't be found. Um, to, to, Nick, to interject MI6. right here and to bring up Charles Halt again from our earlier conversation, mm-hmm. when we had Charles Halt, Ray and I, on the phone talking to Charles Halt, we had already tried to get information from the military, from the Pentagon, about uh, the Rendlesham Forest, Bentwaters, Woodbridge events. And all they could tell us was that the only thing they had was the memorandum that Charles Halt himself had written to his British counterpoints about the events over the course of several nights, the famous Halt memorandum. Well, when we were talking to Halt, we said, you know, we've got a copy of the audio tape, and we can, we can hear that there were soil samples taken. And Halt said, soil samples, I've got them right here on my desk. He had him right there on his desk. Uh, and we said, could you verify for Senator James Exon, who uh, is helping us in trying to uncover more about this, could you verify that there were plaster casts made of the depressions made by this one or more objects? And he said, yeah, I could verify that, sure. So this is the crazy thing about these documents, you know, Nick, have you ever theorized that when you make an FOIA request, it arrives to that central location, and somebody by the name of Barney says, hey, Bill, in about 10 minutes after my break, I'm going to walk into room three and look for those documents that Nick Redfern wants, you know, the ones about blank. And I'll be right back in 10 minutes to look for those documents. So the other guy pulls them out and takes them out and lays them on the floor in the, in the hallway. And the guy goes in and says, man, I've looked through these file cabinets. I can't find anything. I'm sorry, Mr. Redford, there were no documents in that room when I searched that morning. That's because they were out laying on the floor in the hallway. Well, I mean, it is an interesting um, situation when you do use the Freedom of Information Act um, because, you know, there's a lot of material that still has not surfaced. But what I would say is that I've always had very good, um, you know, sort of uh, feedback and situations when I've filed requests, and the agencies have always been very helpful, and if they can reveal and release the material, they will. And if they're not able to, they'll say, you know, it's classified for this but what or that. But what does interest me is when sometimes um, 
agencies legitimately state that, you know, they cannot find the material. Now, sort of getting back to Roswell, um, although no files have ever been uh, released on the event itself, what's particularly intriguing is that all the outgoing messages from the Roswell military base from 1945 to 1950 are gone. They, they cannot be found anywhere. And, and even the Air Force admitted they did not know as to why those files couldn't be found. So, in other words, you know, I don't think the, the, the people in the, the Freedom Information offices are, are bad guys at all. You know, I've always had very good relationships, you know, with them in terms of, hey, you know, we're looking for this and we haven't found anything yet, but, you know, if you can give us any more information, we, you know, it could help us to, to try and find it. So I've always had you know, a good experience. Um, but as I said, the, the thing that really intrigues me is when even the government can't find the files. And this sort of leads me down the sort of path of, you know, the idea of, like, secret governments operating outside of the the elected government, you know, the sort of real, the power brokers and, um, you know, the world manipulators, that kind of thing. I think what happens is that very often... Even the stuff that the government can't find, you know, it, it still exists, but it's held by sort of far more powerful agencies that are pretty much out of the loop of the mm -hmm. Freedom of Information Act. Um, folks, in reading the book also, there are so many topics. I mean, Nick and I and Jim here, we could sit here for weeks and talk about these, these <laughs> topics. There are so many in here. Um, I want you folks to think about World War II and think about the famous author, Ernest Hemingway. Okay? Now I want you to picture Papa Hemingway out in his fishing boat, potentially chasing Nazi submarines. Apparently Hemingway was, was working for U.S. intelligence... Uh, from his vantage point of living in Cuba in at least 1942. That's correct. Yep, that's correct. And um, Ernest Hemingway, I mean, obviously, you know, sort of one of the most famous and revered authors, you know, ever. You know, I mean, he defined a, a particular style of writing, you know, that um, was often copied, but... Uh, not always successfully, you know. But, um, but again, under the Freedom Information Act, the FBI has declassified a 122-page long file on Ernest Hemingway. And um, it, it, the file makes it very clear that Hemingway was sort of perceived by at least some people in the FBI as a person who could offer assistance to the sort of cause of intelligence gathering. And, for example, his, his time spent in Spain during the Spanish Civil War and his time living on Cuba both caught the attention of J. Edgar Hoover and an FBI agent because it was perceived quite correctly, you know, that he was in the right places at the right time mm -hmm. to potentially collect um, sort of intelligence-gathering data. Now, people like Hemingway were very often approached because they had sort of a the perfect cover story, you know, for Hemingway could, you know, living on Cuba, could actually listen here and find um, contacts there and 
and then report back to the United States as to, you know, issues that might be of relevance to national security. But he had the perfect cover-up and, and, and cover, uh, namely being, well, you know, I'm a writer. I, I happen to live on Cuba and I'm a writer. And that's why a lot of these people like Hemingway were chosen, because they had the perfect cover story, you know, they, like their, their other life. Mm-hmm. So he had the life as a, as a, you know, a well-known, revered writer, but when it was needed, you know, he had this other side to him as well. And um, and the files make it very, very clear that um, he had a lot of contacts, particularly on Cuba. And um, and also you can tell from the FBI's uh, reports that he clearly sort of relished this idea of, um, of being like, quote, a secret agent. And um, But then there were some people in the FBI who were not happy about using him they brought up all his issues about alcohol and women and things like this and they're like should we really have somebody like this you know on our books so to speak and so you know it was a it's kind of a it's an intriguing file but in places it's an amusing file as well it it stands to reason that we would want to have somebody in that area of the world because Mm. what what is the closest foreign country to the United States, it would be Cuba. Yep. Yep. Heck, if I, w- if I was a Nazi, I would want to have people there because it would be very easy to monitor shipping, uh, uh, radio communications, all sorts of things. So I would bet that would be a hotbed of activity. Therefore, we would want to have people that could kind of keep an eye on that. People, as you mm-hmm. said, with great covers, with reason to be there, uh, like Ernest Hemingway. Yeah, and of course, the, the other thing, the good thing about Hemingway from the perspective of doing this sort of clandestine job is the fact that he had a lot of contacts and people all around Cuba. You know, everybody kind of knew him, you know, or knew of him. And, you know, in the bars and the clubs and the restaurants, they all knew him. And um, he was able to sort of, you know, in whispered fashion, you know, you hear anything that might be of interest or concern to the U.S. government, you know, let me know and there'll be a few drinks for eating for you, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And th- those are kind of people are really good, you know, when when they're plugged into a lot of people and a lot of contacts. They're the... And, and they actually don't work for the government, you know, so they don't... You know, it's not like anybody would really know what they were doing. Those kind of people are sort of really important, you know, to um, to government agencies very often. Um, and but I said that you know the file is a fascinating one, and um, a, you know you would never believe that sort of um, you know just a famous author had this um, this secret life as well. But um, as you said, I mean Cuba. I mean you only have to look like the Cuban Missile Crisis to know mm-hmm. what back then you know what a, a danger. Um, you know, Cuba was, was was demonstrating, you know, to to have this um, deep concern from the from the U.S. government's perspective. You know, this is just barely any distance away. You know, and and certainly, you know, with the, the with the missile crisis, you know, you've got potential nuclear weapons being brought in until it all sort of um, came to a crashing end, thankfully. Um, but you know, I, I think. People like Hemingway, I mean, um, they are the perfect 
person to do something like that. You know. This is Nick Redfern, and uh, let me give you uh, some ways you can reach out to Nick and or follow him. Um, Nick Redfern Fortean, that's F-O-R-T-E-A-N dot blogspot dot com. Once again, that's Nick Redfern Fortean dot blogspot dot com. Uh, his book is published by Visible Press, um, visibleinkpress.com. And you'll also find Nick Redfern on Facebook. There'll be a couple of jump-off points on his Facebook page uh, as well for, for other uh, uh, pages and things. When, when we come back from our bottom-of-the-hour break, uh, I'd like to talk a little bit about the JFK assassination. And then Jim's got a topic also he wants to ask you about. Okay. So uh, very much enjoying, Nick, having you uh, back on the program. This will be a little bit longer break, so if you need to get up and use the bathroom or refresh your coffee cup, you can do that. And we'll be back in about four minutes with Nick Redfern. Guys and gals, it's such a treat to, again, be here and talk with Nick to hang out with you folks. Um, you're members of the EUP family, and we appreciate you listening in Lincoln, in the United States, and all over the world. Next week's guest, we've got Dr. Raymond Moody and Lisa Smart. We'll be talking about the University of Heaven. Stay tuned for more Nick Redfern right after this.
Voice of the Blues in Lincoln, Nebraska, KZUM Lincoln and KZUM HD. This Week in Lincoln is supported by the local venues with listings here. This is live music happening this week in Lincoln. Saturday, July 27th brings Butts sketch comedy to the Bourbon Theater at 8. And the Zoo Bar hosts the Tom Fick Group and Gerardo Mesa in the Dead of Night at 6, followed at 9 by Barnyard Stompers. On Sunday, July 28th, Craig Estudillo starts at 8 at the Playmore Ballroom, and Scott H. Byram plays a 5 o'clock show at the Zoo Bar, followed by Zularius at 8 with Jacob Erdman and Bridget Callahan. That's live music happening this week in Lincoln. The full moon lights the silver rails winding around dark mountains and over steep gorges of jagged rock in one freezing cold rushing Black Mountain River. I wish there was enough time to describe all of the funny twists and turns that led up to now, but there isn't enough time because there's a ticking clock and the two passengers we care most about don't know anything about it. To see what happens next, visit read.gov to read The Exquisite Corpse, a riveting adventure pieced together by John Sheska, Shannon Hale, Daniel Handler, and other popular authors. Explore new worlds. Read. Brought to you by the Library of Congress and the Ad Council. Hi, I'm Vic Valverde, and I'd like to invite you on a musical journey of both sound and rhythm to a place I call Mesoterra. We'll travel far from commercial culture and just a step or two away from the abstract. So join me on Saturday afternoons, 3 to 5 p.m. for Mesoterra, right here on KZUM. great band you hear in the background is called Enigma, and uh, they are the official music here with my interest in a lot of subjects, but in addition, specifically the UFO phenomenon, I've always liked that, that titled or that opening track is called Sky Dancer. Mm-hmm. Hey, speaking of Sky Dancer, Jim, um, if you have a chance this weekend, look up Stephen Barone, B-A-R-O-N-E, on YouTube. He's got some amazing videos that he's been shooting basically from his backyard mm-hmm. in Las Vegas. Okay, cool. Of uh, over-restricted airspace and um, stuff that, that 
looks very, very interesting. Mm -hmm. He's right. got night vision cameras, et cetera, and uh, pretty interesting, pretty mm. spectacular films. Wow. Uh, with us is our special guest, Nick Redfern. And Nick is the author of 30 books, I believe, Nick. Is that correct? Um, it's, it's the low 50s now, so... <laughs> <laughs> Oh, my goodness. Wow. I, congratulations and many more to come. This, oh, uh, this book I'm holding could be used as a uh, valuable doorstop also. It's got enough <laughs> weight to it. It's called Cover-Ups and Secrets, The Complete Guide to Government Conspiracies, Manipulations, and Deceptions. Uh, there was a gentleman who wrote uh, The Missing Times, uh, News media complicity in the UFO cover-up. He was the journalist Terry Hansen. And uh, he had a really interesting observation that he made to me. He said, there are two things that are ero eroded <clears throat> public confidence in our government. The first was the Roswell incident and the cover-up. And the second was the assassination of John F. Kennedy and the cover-up. So you've got information in there on uh, Lee Harvey Oswald on the, the JFK assassination. What, what did you learn? Well, I think what most people have looked into the Kennedy assassination, what they found is it's sort of like a mass of questions and very few answers, you know. Um, as I live just about a sort of 20-minute drive from Daly Plaza where Kennedy was shot. And, um, you know, so I know the area and the history very well. And, um, you know, people have said, well, how can how can it be, you know, somebody said it's the Cubans, somebody says the Russians, somebody says the Mafia, it's the CIA, it's the FBI, it's somebody else. Um, and people say, well, how could... How could there be angles that sort of support all the different theories? You know, it has to be one or the other. But my view is that I don't think it has to be one thing or the other. For example, um, I think one of the reasons why it's got so confusing is because it's not, you know, it's not just clearly a single, you know, the lone gunman kind of scenario. What we've got are aspects of different operations and agencies involved. I mean, for example, you know, Oswald went to Russia and quite easily and quite easily came back into the United States. I think there's way more to that than sort of meets the eye. But, you know, he also had connections with Cuba. And so in that sense, you it really becomes difficult to put all the threads together or the pieces of the jigsaw. But for me... I, I'm one of these people, I do actually think that Oswald was involved, but I think what happened was that, as he said, he realized after the shooting that he was going to be set up as the fall guy, as the patsy. Um, so I, I don't think he was innocent and turned out to be a patsy. I think he was one of the people involved, mm -hmm. and he was expecting to essentially get the hell out of Dodge with the, the other assassins mm -hmm. when it was all over. And, but the plan was, I think, to have him as the stooge, as the guy who would be the fall guy for it all. Um, and, you know, it, 
We'll never really know because we've got the other aspects of, you know, Oswald being killed the day or two days after, I should say, um, by Jack Ruby. And um, so despite what people say, you know, Oswald never actually went to trial. You know, he, he was dead, you know, within two days of killing Kennedy. And I think that's an important angle. What that what that aspect achieved when um, when Oswald was shot and killed by Ruby that effectively closed the whole thing down. You know, there was no one to testify. There was no court case. And I think whoever was running the assassination, that's what they wanted. Mm -hmm. All sorts of uh, strange people were in and around uh, Daly Plaza. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the way that the Dallas police set up the motorcade was very unusual. There were all sorts of things that, that I remember being a young man and we had a, a Sunday supplement to the paper called Parade Magazine. And the Anderson, uh, uh, colonist Jack Anderson had a column in there uh, every week. There was a picture in his column of, I believe, the grassy knoll. And it was a, a reverse image so you, you had a lot of black on white. You could clearly see somebody in the foliage standing there with what looked like a long tube, which one could easily take to be a long gun of sorts. Now, whether he was one of the good guys, maybe he was a uh, sharpshooter that was there, or one of the quote-unquote bad guys... Uh, you have all sorts of things. It's just, it's never set well with a lot of us. And as Hansen, I think, correctly pointed out, the lack of closure on this and all the muddying of the waters that you mentioned uh, has really helped people to, <laughs> to erode their confidence in the powers that be. I mean, I... I I think every one of us that was alive at that time remembers where they were and what was going on when it was announced that Kennedy was, was killed. Uh, and that has sort of hung over a lot of us as a cloud. Um, Nick, there's also another topic we want to get into for about five minutes here before we close up shop. And uh, Jim has got one here. And w Jim, what's the topic? Well, one of my favorite topics is HARP. And I'll, I'll qualify my interest a little bit by saying that I'm an electronics professional and I've been involved in some form of radio since I was a teenager, so I know a lot about the radio art. Uh, my perspective on harp is it's just a radio. What do you think about that, Nick? Well, actually, uh, interestingly enough, I am one of these people who doesn't buy into all the harp conspiracies. You know, um... The, I mean, harp has been sort of, um, you know, sort of been placed in the guilty party of being, mm -hmm. you know, responsible for this and that and global warming and, you know, changing the weather and um, killing people, all sorts of different things. Um, and, you know, th there's no doubt that there's an entire sort of subculture surrounding the whole sure. harp issue. Um 
Now, I will say, you know, there's, there's no doubt that uh, there is a lot of interest in research going on into weather, mod uh, weather modification and using the weather, which quite literally is, a, is a, as like a, a tool of, of, mm -hmm. um, of military. You know, if you can actually decimate the enemy by directed hurricanes and things like that, uh, which are, and a lot of research is being done into that right now, um, you know, that's... You, you've got plausible deniability. Well, it was nothing to do with us. You know, it was just the weather, that kind of thing. But that's a, a very big difference from that and having something like HARP, which, you know, at the flick of a switch, so to speak, you know, can achieve this or can achieve that, you know. Um, so I, I'm, kind of, I'm kind of in the same... Um, stance, if you like, with chemtrails. It's an interesting thing to research and talk about, but as with HARP, um, I need more evidence to sort of really say, yes, I think there's a major conspiracy there. Yeah, absolutely. From, from my perspective, the physics just isn't there for HARP to be able to do the kinds of things that people are saying it's, it's responsible for. It's, I mean, it's not enough power if you compare it to the amount of electromagnetic magnetic energy pouring into the Earth's magnetic field system every single second from the sun, uh, it's less than a candle in the wind. And to say that, you know, it can influence people or, or cause earthquakes or whatnot at a distance of hundreds or thousands of miles, uh, it, it just doesn't fit with the, the kind of things that radio actually does. I yeah, I agree with you on that. And I think it's important to note, you know, that those of us who sort of look into conspiracy theories, you know, we don't just sort of buy into everyone that comes along, mm -hmm. you know. Um, for me, it's important to sort of look into all of the data. And if one the conspiracy yes. theory holds up, well, I'll look into it further. If it turns out to be nonsense, well, it's just one of those that we put to one side and we focus on the more intriguing ones. You know, I think sometimes there's this image that the, the public have of somebody who writes or researches about conspiracies, you know, that you you buy into everything and, you know, you get up and peek through the curtains in case the men in black are there. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's not like that. You know, most of us, hopefully, are sort of down, you know, very, very kind of um, level-headed. Yeah. And you just look exactly. for facts, you know, not sensationalism. Sure. Nick, it's been a pleasure once again to, to have you back on, and you are so prolific. I said this is a brand new book, but you've even got a newer book out, and is it UFOs Over the Kremlin? UFOs from, uh, well, Flying Saucers from the Kremlin, yeah. This is actually a weird story. It's about how at the height of the Cold War, the Russians um, used the phenomenon or the, the culture of the UFO subject as a means to try and um, create hysteria and paranoia in the U.S. by trying to uh, create bogus, bizarre UFO stories. And it was sort of like a, a psychological warfare-type um, operation and uh, it demonstrates how the UFO subject has sort of been manipulated um, as a means to sort of mess with the mindset, if you like. You would be an interesting guy to sit down and, and have a meal with, Nick. Yeah. I hope we can do that someday. Yeah, that would be cool. That would be good. Okay, Nick, thanks again for taking part here, and uh, 
I look forward to having you back on the program in the near future. All right. Thanks a lot, Scott. Nick Redfern and his website, a good jump off point is nickredfernfortian.blogspot.com. And I think that if you typed in Nick Redfern into your favorite search engine, there'll be a bunch of stuff that pops up. You'll also find Nick on Facebook. Stay tuned next week for Dr. Raymond Moody and Lisa Smart. And they're going to join us talking about the University of Heaven. Jim, Mm. uh, what are you doing for the rest of Saturday? I think I'm going to go home and play with some radios. And uh, I'm going to forego doing a lawn today. I'm just going to to lay. Yeah, it's going to be mid-90s, they're saying today. So good time to stay inside. Okay, Jim, thanks for being here. What a fun show. Thanks Thanks for sharing some coffee with us. Our best to Nick Redford and to Mm -hmm. all you guys and gals out there. Stay tuned at 12 o'clock noon for Beta Radio. And uh, I have no idea what's going to be happening, but I think we're all going to find out in about four and a half minutes. Yeah. From us to you, thanks so much for listening. And until next week, walk in beauty.